I want to welcome you once again to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, hopefully uh, you're, you're kind of enjoying this dreary Sunday morning. Um, I don't love it myself, um, but uh, it, it's, it's, it's what we got. But uh, if you're a guest with us, if you're new to the church, I just want to say and highlight that we're really uh, happy and honored that you would be choosing to spend uh, a Sunday morning with us. We don't take it lightly that you could be doing other things, but we're glad that you visit, you're visiting and you're here um, joining us um, this morning. Um, we're going to continue to walk through the book of First Peter, and we're in chapter 2. But before I pray, I want to give you something you can pray for me about. Um, I hurt my back <laughs> really bad yesterday. Um, and unfortunately, it's not, it's not a good story. I don't have a good story to go with it. Um, I wish I could say I was like chopping wood, <laughs> lifting a heavy box for my wife, even wrestling with the boys. I, I, was, I was actually um, lifting up the toilet lid. <laughs> not, not the tank lid on the back that's a little heavier, but the toilet lid itself, right? Um, yeah, so there's a whole sermon there about the body wasting away and weakness and all the stuff, but that's, that's for another time. But I need prayer, um, and if I'm doing a little shuffle or I'm grim grimacing or whatever, like just know that that's, that's what it is today. So I'm going to do my best to get through this, but let me pray, and then we're going to jump into the text. Father, I'm, I'm thankful for um, this time. I'm thankful that you've given us your word, that when we stand up here to preach, whether it's myself or somebody else, we don't have to, to grasp and to, to try to get um, too creative with what we're going to preach about, that you're, you're, you've given us your word. And so we know where to go to find um, what you want to say to people, and that's in your word. And I pray that as we get into this text this morning, I pray that we would humble ourselves and uh, kind of put ourselves under your word, allow your word to, to challenge us. And I pray that, um, that through your spirit, God, that if people in here are maybe too com comfortable, that you would um, stir up and afflict. And if people in here are, are already feeling afflicted and, and stirred up, I pray that you would comfort and we trust that you are um, active and that you move through your word. So we trust that you'll do that this morning. And we love you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. There was a study that was done back in September, so just five, six months ago. And the, they surveyed a little over 1,600 um, U.S. adults. And they asked them this question. There may have been other questions, but this was the question the article I read highlighted. The question was, what's the number one feeling that comes to mind for you or for Americans when thinking about the upcoming presidential election? And they gave the respondents seven emotional choices, emotions you could pick. And you could choose as many as you wanted. Like three were positive, three were negative, one was neutral. And the most common response was the most negative emotion they gave as a choice, and that was dread. 41% of the people chose dread for how they would, how they're feeling about the upcoming election. This was just five or six months ago. If you asked it now, it probably would go up even more than that. The other, the second most responded answer was the second kind of worst thing you could say, I guess, uh, select on it was exhaustion. So dread, 
exhaustion. And the fourth choice was um, indifference. People are just kind of done with it. And so, uh, in total, a majority of Americans, over 50, or I guess 56%, chose at least one of the three negative feelings, and under a third of Americans chose uh, one of the positive responses, right? So, I don't, I don't think I needed to share that with you, to, to, if I asked you honestly, how are you feeling about the political culture of our day in our country? I mean, that, you probably would feel some of the same things, maybe not to the degree here, but you feel, and maybe you are distracted, or you just want to be over it, or you just want to bury your head in the sand because it's just too much, too much um, toxicity and too much fighting. But we need to talk about it. Because remember, Peter's main aim in this letter, in, in, in 1 Peter 2, is to equip us, to call us to be faithful exiles in this world, Right? Not another world, in this world, right? As we live in this world, how can we represent God well? How can we glorify God well? How can we see that God would receive more glory than he has right now? And so we have to deal with the issues that are uh, presented before us. And right now is a really good time to talk about what kind of politics and the election cycle can do to us. And in God's sovereignty, I love that First Peter, I mean, Peter addresses it in this book. He addresses it. And I think we would all say, whether you're a follower of Jesus in this room or not, that emotions like dread, exhaustion, depression, anxiety, even indifference, aren't the kind of things that you want to be known for, even as a human being, even outside of being a Christian. But as a human being, that's not how we want to be characterized. That's not what we want to feel. We want to feel like excitement and joy Hope, freedom, these kinds of things. Now, before we get into this, I want to warn you that this might be one of those weeks where the the clear teaching of God's word challenges you. It's challenged me all week. As I've studied it and reflected on it, it's been a challenging week for me. So my prayer is that you'll come to this text open-minded with some humility. And really, and maybe with the possibility that you can be changed by God's word this morning. Not the words that I say but the words that, have, that are inspired by God that Peter wrote down. And Peter's going to give us really three things, three very, I think, practical ways we can live this out in this area of our lives. The first thing he's going to tell us is that we are free to submit. We are free in Christ to submit. Second, we are free in Christ to serve. And third, we are free in Christ to honor. And again, my hope is that through looking at this, we would be equipped and we would feel more confident um, in how we relate to our government and politics in general um, this morning. So let's get into the text. Peter comes out of the gate with this. Verse 13, be subject or submit, depending on which English translation you're using, uh, be subject or submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So this is our first point that Peter wants us to show us. We are free in Christ to submit to human institutions. Right? This word is, again, submit, to put yourself under, to subject yourself under or to something or someone. 
right? And we don't like this word. This isn't a warm and fuzzy word when we say submit to something, right? One of the reasons is we don't like authority. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, didn't like the authority that they were under, and they rebelled. And it's been in our fleshly human DNA ever since. We don't like to be under authority. And then when we even throw the word submit or or be subject to it, it feels constricting. It feels restraining to us. Again, something that we don't like. But Peter also says in this passage that we are free. We are to live as free people. God has designed things in a way that because you are free in Christ, you can submit. And through that submission, you'll actually flourish and find freedom and joy in Jesus. Because God is the one we submit to first, which we'll get into that a little bit later. But this idea of submission, I think how does submission and freedom go together? Because it doesn't seem like they would. Let me give you some examples from just our everyday life and world. Take music, for example. Musicians have to submit themselves to the notes, to the music, in order to have the freedom to play good music, or so I'm told, right? That's what the musicians tell me. Um, This is what has to happen if you're a musician. Um, In sports, you submit to the training process or to practice so that when the lights come on and you're playing the game, you don't overthink. You can just react and play the game to the best of your ability. Language learning. You submit to the language rules so that down the road you can be free and fluent and don't have to think about speaking that language. Take driving. You submit to the laws as you drive to be able to go from point A to point B or to take a road trip. You have the freedom to do that now as long as you submit to the laws when you're behind the wheel. And to put this in a negative context, imagine a fish. They want to be out of water. But as long as they submit themselves to being in the water, they're going to flourish. But the moment they get out of water, that air That air only is not going to give them freedom. It's going to kill them. And this is, again, back to the echoing Genesis 1 and 2, where Adam and Eve were given everything they needed at their disposal. Under the authority of a good, benevolent God, everything they needed, everything they need to flourish and to to, to live the life that God had called them to live, and they chose to rebel. They They didn't want to be under God's authority. So I want us to see that this text is good. It's good for us. It doesn't make it easy. doesn't make it simple, but it's good. Submission is a good thing, especially as it relates in the context of God and our relationship with him. But it will challenge us. Now, one thing before we get further into this, Peter does not say you have to like or support or champion everything a government or leader does. The Bible doesn't tell us to vote in a certain way, to join a particular party. It doesn't give us an exhaustive list of every political issue and how we should kind of go on all those political issues. Now, there are some that are clearer than others. But for the most part, when you apply the Bible to politics, there's a lot of nuance. There's principles that you have to find. There's wisdom that you have to move into the scriptures with to try to understand how these two things relate. Peter is primarily speaking about our posture our disposition, like what is happening inside of us as we relate to politics and our political leaders. He's, he's wanting to, 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 to come at that and more and, and less about who we vote for or what side we're on. 
Paul in 1 Timothy, when he writes to his understudy, his mentee, um, Timothy says this in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Kind of the same spirit with what with Peter's writing about. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, kind of what we're talking about today, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So Paul's telling Timothy and the other readers of this letter that we should pray that the governors and the authorities would kind of leave us alone. Pray that they would leave us alone so we could live quiet and peaceful lives. And I think that's the same posture that Peter's asking us to take. Gentle, quiet, submissive. This is how we must start when we move into this passage. Now, Peter could have said, back to verse 13, he could have said, um, submit to the governing authorities or to human institutions. He could have said that, but he adds this phrase, for the Lord's sake or unto the Lord. And we can't miss this. This is really important, right? Because we don't submit to the authorities just for submission's sake. And we don't even submit on account of the government authorities. The government authorities and, and leaders don't have anything innate or, or, or intrinsic to them that should cause us to submit to them. Like they, don't even, they may not even have the values that we should that, that deserve submitting to. We submit entirely on account of Jesus. We submit for the Lord's sake. We can't forget about that idea. So when we are putting ourselves under or, or subjecting ourselves to authorities, it should never be done in a mindless way. It should always be done with thought to, it is an occasion for us to honor King Jesus by submitting to this particular government, party, political figure, whatever it is. Let's go back to the text, okay? So be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be by emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. So that, that, that phrase in verse, that statement in, in verse 15, commentators think it actually refers back to that verb submit. So it, it, in God's plan, it is his will that you submit to the government authorities he's put into place. That is his purpose. That is in his providence. That's what he desires. In verse 14, we're given a part of the why. Well, why why should we do that? Well, um, one of the reasons why God has placed government and authorities um, in the places they are is to restrain evil. Imagine if there were, in our, in our, um, our human depravity, the wickedness of our collective humanity, if there were no laws... If there were um, no police, no justice system, right? You could, that list could go on and on, right? There would be chaos. So part of government authorities, Peter is saying, and other parts of the Bible would echo this, that God puts those in restraint, to, to, in place to restrain evil. We see this from Paul in Romans 13, kind of a mirror passage to Peter's here. And Paul goes so far as even saying that they were actually put into place by God, good or evil, whether you agree or not agree, they were put into place by God. So the question arises, and, and again, I thought of this all week. Well, what about evil and unjust governments? What do we do when a government's evil and unjust? Um, again, Peter is not nuanced here. It doesn't matter if those governing authorities are good or bad, if you elected them or not, if you agreed with them or not. Christians are to submit to governing authorities and those authorized to speak on their behalf. 
God is not surprised that they're in office. He put them there. Now, you may be saying, well, Peter just doesn't get us. Peter doesn't understand how bad politics are in our country. He does. All right? You think of the Bible. Some of the, some of the nations who were involved in, 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 in having authority over God's people, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians in the Old Testament, authoritative, oppressive, wicked governments who took joy in oppressing Christians. We take the New Testament, right? We have the New Testament. We have, we have Paul writing the, the, really the entire New Testament under the authority, not under the authority, but under the, the regime of the emperor. And particularly when, when Peter was writing this, probably Nero. Nero, who crucified Peter upside down, who ordered Paul's head to be cut off. This, this Nero, right? There's no U.S. president who's ever crucified Christians and cut their head off. There's never been one. So Peter understands. Peter understands when he writes this, he understands what it's like to live under an oppressive um, regime in government. So the, the, the marginalization and the pushback we experience, we do as Christians, and it's probably getting worse. But it still pales in comparison to the systematic, legit, government-sponsored persecution of Christians. It's not even close. doesn't mean our country won't be there one day. But I think in the present and in the near future, we're probably a ways away from that. Peter would say, because we are chosen, set apart, and belong to God as servants, we submit. Not on behalf of the actual authorities, but on behalf of God. The people we submit to don't have the authority in and of themselves. God, the ultimate authority, has put them in power for his purposes. So number one, we are free in Christ to submit. Uh, number two. We are also free in Christ to serve. Look at verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, act as free people, what Peter is saying there, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So when we submit to government authorities, a kind of subversion takes place. This isn't a subversion like some kind of evil subversion. It's a subversion through serving or doing good. This is what Peter's saying here. When we serve as people who are exiles, who are marginalized, whose world is not their home, um, it, it changes people. It can, it can silence the foolish um, tendencies of the world around us. But the way we can't we can handle that is to demand our rights, reach for power to try to overcome this ignorance. Peter's saying we serve, we submit in order to gain influence. And history tells us this. And this is a broad brush, but there, there are traditionally two ways to fight corrupt power. You can overcome power with more power. And history tells us this doesn't go well. The oppressed, the, the ones who've been oppressed become the oppressors if they have overcome that regime with power. And the cycle continues over and over and over. This is not God's desire for the world. Another way to fight power is with submission and subversion. We see Martin Luther King do this by working on the conscience of a nation, appealing to natural law and moral law that resides inside of every human person because we are created in the image of God. So he appealed to that to kind of subvert the power and gain influence. This is the, this is the kind of thing that Peter would um, um, agree with in this particular um, passage. And we use this freedom to serve, not to seek our own interests in selfishness. 
So it's not just a freedom from, it's a freedom to something or for something. We're not just free to do kind of whatever we want to do. We're actually free to, to, uh, to, to, to do something about this, to, to take action in this. Um, we're free to love our neighbor as ourselves, right? We're, we're free to love our enemies now. We're free from having to, to, to kind of put ourselves in, and go all in with the political party or an agenda because we're free in Christ. We don't have to submit ourselves to that degree under a political party or agenda. Now, you may say that this doesn't sound like freedom. Jeremy, this doesn't sound like freedom, this idea of submission. Well, it depends how you define freedom. If you define freedom as you can do anything you want, anytime, and just you be you, be your true self, you go do, and whatever you do is not going to affect anybody else, like, yeah, that's, what, that's not what Peter's saying here, right? When the Bible speaks of freedom, it is a restricted freedom by God himself. And we talk about this a lot, but ultimately no human being is, is really free. You're always being influenced by something outside of yourself, whether that's we, we believe in Satan, like the enemy, it could be the world, it could be friends, it could be a philosophy, and you're also influenced by kind of things inside of you. So ultimately, human beings, we're never totally, completely free. We're always going to be slaves to something. And Peter's saying that as slaves to a loving, just, and holy God, submit in our service to the government, but actually we're submitting to him. And we are free to do good because we are servants, bond servants, slaves to God. So we can submit. So we're free in Christ to submit. We're also free in Christ to serve. Last thing, we're free in Christ to honor. We're free in Christ to honor. Verse 17, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Four things Peter gives. They're just short. Boom, 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 right? First one, honor everyone, right? This, but most commentators think this could be, um, there's a little difference in the grammar here, and it could be like the umbrella statement, and these other three things flow from it, or it could stand alone. But either way, um, th this, this honor everyone, he moves into a more general statement here. And he also says love the church, right? Love the brotherhood means love brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, but the, the key, I think, is this honor everyone idea, and we'll get to that here in a second. And then the last two, fear God, honor the emperor. Um, many commentators think there's a reason why Peter kind of put these two together at the end of this verse, and it's kind of a, a comparison, right? It's almost like saying, you're to fear God and honor the emperor. It's like kind of what Peter's saying there. There's only one you should fear. There's only one who demands ultimate allegiance and authority, and that is God himself. And oh yeah, honor the emperor. I'm telling you, I've already told you to honor everyone. Yeah, honor the emperor, but fear God. There's only one we should put our hope in as followers of Jesus, and that is God. So let's go back to this idea of honor. Let's kind of unpack this a little bit. We're to honor everyone, not shame them. You could say that shaming someone is the opposite of honoring them. And let's just say you're not, like, you're not like tied up in the election and maybe this isn't a thing for you and it doesn't bother you. Let's just stick with this idea of honor for a second. Um, I think most of us have trouble honoring people, especially those that disagree with us. Or maybe they hold positions that we just don't like. It's hard to not to honor these people. Okay? Maybe here's some examples. Right? There could be more, but here's, here's a few. Uh, when you come across that snarky person you don't agree with on social media and you just want to blow them up right and it's a temptation i've been there many times 
I just am like trying to hold back and restrain myself from popping off and doing that. And I think it's a temptation. If you're on social media at all, it's probably a temptation for you, right? I know what it is. I know if you get more courage behind a keyboard or just typing something into your phone. But it's a lot easier to dishonor someone when you're not face-to-face. It's a, lot hard to, it's a lot harder to dishonor someone when you actually know a little bit about the person you are kind of fighting with on social media. So I would encourage you, if, if that's a temptation or you practice that, take a break. Right? Take a break from social media. Uh, secondly, um, and this is something that I think can lead us to dishonoring people, right? When you only watch one particular news station about politics, right? No, no, none of the popular news stations actually tell the truth, right? Shocker, right? Like they speak to their base. And so if you're always on one side, I guarantee you, you are going to be more tempted to look down upon, dishonor, demonize the other side of things, okay? No matter what side you're on, this happens. So my encouragement would be to, to not watch those kind of things, try to find something that's a little bit more middle of the road, that's not trying to make money off of eyeballs, or... Um, Trying to find, um, um, or, or be more balanced, right? Trying to find a, a um, if you're going to watch one, watch the other, right? Get both sides of the truth, so to speak, right? To do that. And I think the last one is, is, is that, um, that I thought of this week is that, that neighbor that you see um, a political yard sign in their front yard, right? And you happen to make, make it be a, a presidential election yard sign, or maybe someone in your local election, and because they have a certain yard sign in their front yard, you actually start kind of making judgment calls on the person without even getting to knowing them. Like, well, I'm not going to say hi to them, or I'm not going to have them over for dinner. You just change the way you treat someone. You don't honor them just because they have someone's yard sign that you disagree with in their front yard. That's not honoring, right? That's not honoring someone because they have a yard sign, right? Let's... Let's, let's do better. Let's work on that. And I think what we'll get to at the end, I think, will help us with it. There's so many other examples I could use, but these examples that I know I've kind of felt, and so I wanted to um, bring those out into the light. Um, again, most rhetorics, I think, in rhetoric and politics ends up shaming and demonize the other group of party because if it's a zero-sum game and you need to win, this is what you do. But you got to win, so that's the temptation if you're kind of into that thing. Now, here... Here, here, I'll say this. To honor someone doesn't mean you agree with everything they say and do. Doesn't, that's not even close to honoring someone. You don't have to be agreeable to people that you disagree with. So let's take an example. Maybe you disagree with a position that someone has. It's a good start to remember that they are made in the image of God. They bear God's image in, in who they are. And they probably have a story. They probably were brought up in some way. They probably maybe have some brokenness that leads them to have this, to, to have this viewpoint or opinion, right? They, uh, we don't, you probably don't know what their motives are unless you know them really well. Okay, so it's basically trying to understand who a person is and then truly trying to understand their position on whatever it is. We're so quick to kind of box people in, oh, you must be this and this is how I already feel about you, instead of truly trying to understand what that person's position is. And then you can bring forth a, an intellectual counter-argument to whatever they believe. Again, you don't have to agree with them, but let's honor their position. Let's, not, let's separate their viewpoint for the actual person and focus on their viewpoint and actually have a constructive intellectual conversation, which, again, is almost impossible unless you're face-to-face. Now, it could be done maybe on social media, m- maybe, 
but it should probably be done face-to-face most times, right? Um, That's a way we can honor people. And again, we don't want to misrepresent people, represent their art. I love one of Tim Keller's favorite lines was that when we're disagreeing with someone, kind of the first step in having a civil discourse is actually representing their position well, not kind of setting up a straw man that maybe they kind of would agree with and then just destroying it, right? Representing their position. So all that says is it takes some work. It takes some work to understand their position. It takes some work to come up with an intelligent counter argument to whatever they're putting forth. It takes time and effort, but that's the way we honor And maybe you want to try to persuade someone. I guarantee you're going to have a a better ear from them if you love and serve them and earn the right to persuade them. There are people I would love to get in a room with and just persuade to follow my opinion. I'm very opinionated. I want people to believe what I believe. But realizing that you probably are going to have to love and serve, treat them like an image bearer, before you're actually going to get any ears to hear your point of view. This is what, again, Paul is saying. We serve, we subvert, we love to put to, to, put, to, put to shame the foolishness um, and the ignorance. Peter uses those words. So we're free in Christ to submit. We're also free in Christ to serve, and we're free in Christ to honor. Let's go back to where we started, right? The, the, the list of responses in this survey. How can we be the kind of people who aren't dreading this year? as it relates to government, politics? How can we not already be exhausted by the thought of having to walk through 2024? Maybe it's going to be like 2016 and 2020, right? I think one of the key uh, principles or foundations to all of this is that we should love our country, we should pray for our country, we should serve our country in a way that's going to make it a better place to live. We should do all of those things. I think that's a part of of what Peter's calling us to do. But we should never, ever put our hope in the government or government authorities and leaders. We should never put our hope in them. And this is, I think, where we go wrong and we feel like we need to react. All forms of government and leadership have limits, and there are limits to how much we can obey. When we're pushed to to disobey God in order to follow a, a policy or a law, we can resist, we can obey, we can, we can not obey the state and what are they laying out to do. Again, I don't think that is very common, but we can do that. But even if that's our decision and we feel like that's wise, we can't forget our posture. We do it with humility, we do it with gentleness, we don't beat our chest, we don't demand our rights. We humbly resist because we fear God. And we're, this isn't our home, we're aliens. We're sojourners, right? We're only here for a short time. And Jesus is our ultimate example here. In his trial and death, Jesus submits to the Jewish authorities and to the Roman authorities. In humility, he takes a beating and allows them to crucify him. It's not hard, right? He is our ultimate example. And here's a Text that we'll look at next week, but I wanted to share it today. This is, this is Peter appealing to Jesus as our example. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's God. 
he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and to live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So Jesus had this great relationship, God the Son, Jesus had this great relationship with God the Father where he was in constant submission to him, following him, loving him, and out of that relationship to God, he was able to submit, to lay down his life. He could have snapped his fingers, said one word, and wiped out everyone that was there at his trial and his death. But he chose to not do that. He submitted himself to the process. He submitted himself to the Jewish authorities and to the Roman authorities. If you're struggling with the government, then look to Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at him as an example. Through his suffering and death, was the only way that we could be made right with God. We have our spiritual and eternal lives to thank him for submitting himself to this process that would lead to his crucifixion, ultimately his resurrection as well. This is the gospel. Jesus laid down his life for us. How can we not lay our lives down to human authorities, to human institutions, if Jesus has already done that on our behalf? Right? Orphans made children. Broken people healed as a result of his submission. People who were far off being brought back close. People who were forgotten being chosen. People who had no purpose are now set apart for his purposes. People who who are insecure and who are scared and who who can't figure out who to trust or what to trust. He says, you belong to me. You're mine. This is the Jesus we serve. This is the Jesus we submit to as king. That's why Jesus can't be co-opted into to fit a party or group or agenda. He's too conservative for liberals. He's too liberal for conservatives. He's too Democrat for Republicans. He's too Republican for Democrats. And again, it doesn't mean we just sit on our hands and do nothing. That's not what, he, that's not what Peter's saying here. We're not non-committal. We're committed to something entirely different. We're servants of God, and we're freed to see the world through his lens and serve and love in a different kind of way so that it would put to foolish to put to put to put to, to, to quiet the foolishness the ignorance and more people would come to know him and glorify him this is god's purpose in how we relate to political and human authorities now to kind of move towards closing our how do we respond to this but i think we read a challenging text in the scriptures anytime we read this that really gets in our business, which I think probably this has. It's got, got in me this whole week, right? We should ask, how is this leading me to repentance? That's a humbling question to ask, I know. But how does this lead me to change? How does this lead me to repent? Maybe you care too much about politics. Maybe you need to change the way you speak to people who differ with you. Maybe you're so wrapped up in this that it's kind of taking away attention from more important things like your family, God, church. Maybe on the other side, maybe you need to be more involved and more intentional, kind of being indifferent and just kind of sitting on your hands. I don't think that's the way that Peter's asking us to go here. We do good. We're intentional. We use our freedom from serving. We look around locally and say, what can I do to make this a better place? How can I serve under the authorities that we find ourselves under in, just say, Norman or Cleveland County? So, number one, we repent. Number two, I think this passage helps comfort us. If you come in here dreading, even when I said we're talking about politics, you're like, oh, can't even get away from this stuff, right? 
you're exhausted from hearing. Maybe you're exhausted with me talking about this. Um, well, here's the, the positive about those results from this poll. Maybe, just maybe, this current political state we've been in for maybe the last 10, 12 years, uh, and maybe what we're about to move into, has shown us that when we try to put our hope in human institutions and in human politicians, it doesn't go anywhere. It actually leads to hopelessness, dread, exhaustion, depression, anxiety. That's what it does. We put our hope in these things rather than in Jesus. And we need to take this misplaced hope and put it back in Christ, who, rede who redeems sinners, who makes a way for people who are far from God, who are broken, who have past that you're ashamed of. Through Jesus' submission and the gospel, God says, come, come to me, all who are weary and laden and heavy burden, and I'll give you rest. Come is the call this morning for us to be comforted. And Jesus also will eventually set up the new heavens and the new earth one day. We can look forward to that in hope. And all this submission to human institutions and authority, it'll be gone. It'll be done because we'll have one king. He's the perfect king. He's our savior. And we will submit to him in freedom and joy and worship and all of the good things that we want in a king will be ours when Jesus sets up the new heavens and the new earth. And it is coming. It's not here yet, but it is coming. So instead of dread or exhaustion, we can, I want us to be energized. I want us to see this as followers of Jesus, the church, as, as our time, our moment, our challenge. Like there's so much toxicity. There's so much fighting out there over these types of things. What if the church, what if we were able to subvert the system, subvert the toxicity by doing good, loving, serving, um, loving people, or they are honoring people? What if we did that and see this, this season, 2024, as an opportunity to do good and maybe one of our best opportunities in a long time to actually stand out, to actually honor God and stand above the fray, that he might get glory for our, how we interact with people during this season where we're probably going to disagree with people. I think it starts inside the church. It starts with us being, having unity and not being unified. We're not going to agree on everything. We're not going to agree on who to vote for. We're not going to agree on, we're not going to agree on all that stuff, but we can have unity in our disagreements. We can speak to each other in such a way that is honorable. So when the world from the outside looks in, they see us as being honorable. Like we listen well. We have cordial disagreements. We have productive arguments. We don't cancel people because they agree on one thing over here. We, we lean in and say, tell me more about that. I don't, I don't agree with you, but tell me more. I want to understand where you're coming from. And then that will spill over to the world and how the world reacts and how the world acts on this. And we might be somewhat a good witness for God. Someone, when they see us, they might be like, well, these people are different. They treat us different. They treat each other different. We need to be different. And the way we do that is to put our hope in Jesus. Let's put our hope in Jesus and not political authorities or human institutions. Let's pray. Father, we, again, thank you for your scriptures where we can't get away from the hard topics. As we go through this book, there are, there are difficult things that Peter's addressing because life is difficult. We have to figure out as disciples of Jesus how this stuff applies to the difficult things, the hard things, the hard relationships, the, the complicated situations. 
So help us understand. I pray that as a result of looking at your word this morning, that you would change us. That you would soften our heart if we don't like the submission, serving, and honoring language. I pray that you would soften our hearts. Cause us to be the kind of people who honor everyone. Honor our governing authorities. And trust and put our hope in Jesus above everything else. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.